This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Okay, well, welcome everyone to the uh, library event today. This event is sponsored by the psychology department, and we have um, a great speaker for you today. Um, his name is Robert Smola, and he's written a book um, called, let me sure I get the name right, <laughs> A Waltz Through La La Land, A Depression Survivor's Memoir. And he's going to be talking to you about um, some of his experiences today and about his book. Um, some of you, at least hopefully most of you in my class, have read uh, the excerpt that you were provided with. So um, we'll have some time for questions as well after he talks. So I'd like you to welcome Robert. It's never a good sign when someone says a great speaker and then you have to go on next. I don't have any uh, rabbits to pull out of a hat, but hopefully you'll learn something along the way or be entertained or something. But before we get started, uh, my wife is here and today is our 19-year anniversary, so I'd like her to stand up and I'd like you to give her a round of applause. Did any of you read the excerpt? Seriously, if you didn't, it's okay. I just want to know if anybody read it. Okay, there's a couple of you. All right, good. That's not Raven. She's in that excerpt, right? There you go. That's not her. <laughs> All right, well, who am I? Uh, my name is Robert Smola, and I've been in social services for nearly 19 years. Um, pretty much as soon as I got out of what I call sort of an internship at River Edge Hospital in, uh, I believe it's River Forest, I went into social service industry as sort of a thank you to those that provided great care and services to me when I was unable to care for myself. Um, when I was 22 years old, I graduated from Western Illinois University in Macomb, I graduate, and I'm not bragging about myself, I'm just trying to give you a little perspective. I graduated magna cum laude uh, from Western in political science. I was accepted to the DePaul School of Law, and um, I was dating an interesting girl at the time. <laughs> Take it easy, will you? And the reality of it is, is that whether you believe it or not, um, and when you think you're on top of the world or you think that everything's going fantastic or that you have the world by whatever particular anatomy piece you think you have the world by, that things can occur and maybe you don't have the world by that particular anatomy. My name is Robert Smola. I'm not in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but I have a, an issue or clinical depression. I have um, had it probably or been diagnosed with it for about 20 years. Currently, I take um, 10 milligrams of Prozac, or the generic term is Floxentine, so that means I don't have to pay as much anymore because the patent wore off for the uh, drug company. And I've been able to manage it now for 20 years, um, and if there's one thing that you take away from my discussion today, it's the following, I hope it's the following, that you can have an emotional disorder or a mental illness or an issue of that nature, and if you get the right treatment and you address it correctly, that you can live a normal, productive life. Okay, I'm never going to be accused of being normal. Anybody that knows me knows that I'm probably not within the normal range. I, I look at things a little bit differently, but you can live a productive life. Since my episode in 1989-1990, because I was in River Edge Hospital on First Avenue and Roosevelt Road for approximately four and a half months. <laughs> After that, I have not had any episodes in which um, I was unable to function. So that was 19 years ago. I'm fortunate. It's my understanding, and Amy, if I say anything that you disagree with, please raise your hand and say, I don't agree with that. 
you know, that's obviously uh, some of these things are my own opinion, things that I've been able to gather as someone who's been in the field for 19 years, etc. Um, but I, it's my understanding that folks that suffer from emotional disturbances or whatever, they kind of fall into three categories. There are those folks that have an episode, are able to kind of recover, get the treatment they need, and move on, and are able to function without any problem. That's me. There's a third that have an episode or several episodes, will fight it, will struggle, will have times in their lives where they're not able to function so highly, but should be able to get through the other side. And then there's a third that they call the chronically mentally ill that will suffer from mental illnesses and will basically, that will be their life's mission, is to struggle through that and get through it, and they'll be in and out of institutions, in and out of treatment, and it's a very sad and challenging thing, especially for the families of those that uh, support those folks. Now, I want to take an informal survey. How many of you out there in the audience <laughs> have a friend, a family member, or know someone who has had an emotional uh, disturbance? Major depression, bipolar disorder, cyclothymia, dysthymia. Wow. Okay. That makes an awful lot of sense to me. Is that why you guys are studying psychology? Want to? Is that? Does that have anything to do with it? No. <laughs> okay. All right then. Um. All right, so let me talk a little bit, and I'm sure Amy and the other, because I think there's several classes that are here today. I'm sure you've talked about this stuff, um, but I just want to give you some statistics that I was able to gather, and this is from the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, the numbers count mental disorders in America. It's a web page. So I believe, and I would have to check with your teachers, I believe on my outline I've annotated it correctly, so I hope I get the proper grade for that. An estimated 26.2% of Americans ages 18 and older, which is about one in four adults, suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder in a given year. So that's in a given year, right? 26.2% 18 and older suffer from a, a, a mental disorder. When applied to the 2004 US, U.S. Census residential population, estimate for ages 18 and older, this figure translates to 57.7 million people. That's a lot. When I, asked the, when I did my informal survey, a whole bunch of you raised your hand. It looked like it was more than half of you knew someone that had suffered from some sort of emotional disorder. Approximately 20.9 million American adults, or about 9.5% of the U.S. population age 18 and older in a given year, have a mood disorder. Bipo you guys, have you guys studied the differences between bipolar disorder Clinical depression, dysthymia. Do you know what dysthymia is? Who knows what dysthymia is? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. <laughs> dysthymia? It's kind of like depression light, essentially. It has... Pardon? Was it where... I don't remember. I think we're talking about... Was that when you're on medication too long and then... No, you're thinking of tardive dyskinesia. But that's, that's a nice try. I mean, it sounds phonetically similar... Um, dysthymia is essentially a type of depression, and I, you know, for lack of a better term, I kind of call it major depression light. There's sort of, um, it, a person has sort of a general melancholy about them. They never seem, and these are sort of, these are not the clinical terms, this is more of a descriptive. They seem to, to always be down, but they seem to function all right. And if you look in the DSM-4, do you all know what the DSM-4 is? Diagnostical Statistical Manual on, got it? In there, it defines specifically what dysthymia is, you know, how long you have to have to suffer from the mood disorder, what the specific symptoms are, etc. But to me, again, dysthymia is kind of like depression light. Here's one that I find very interesting. Major depressive disorder is the leading cause of disability in the U.S. for ages 15 to 44. It's not cancer. It's not... Diabetes, it's not, it's major depression. Major depression disorder is the leading cause of disability in the U.S. for ages 15 to 44. Bipolar disorder. 
Bipolar disorder is the artist formerly known as manic depression. It's not called that anymore. It affects approximately 5.7 million American adults, or about 2.6% of the U.S. population age 18 and older in a given year. The median age of onset for bipolar disorder is 25 years old. Bipolar disorder is, if I would describe it, as folks have uh, two ends of it. They have mania and they have depression, and they don't suffer it at the same time. Folks who have manic depression, when they're medicated, often state that the one thing they'll miss more than anything is their manic phases. Because when you're manic, you feel omniscient. You feel godlike. You feel like you can do anything. But it causes all kinds of problems. The psychiatrist that treated me at the time related a story to me about a man who was a Hinkley-Schmidt driver. He drove. He was a water truck driver, which is a respectable profession. But he had bipolar disorder. And when he went off his meds, he ended up purchasing three Jaguars, and was on the, he was on the phone trying to negotiate a deal for his life story to three different studios in Hollywood. That's the end result of bipolar disorder. People who often suffer from bipolar disorder in a manic phase end up in incredibly, um, have poor judgment, end up in promiscuous situations that they probably regret later. There's drug use. There's all kinds of things. So those that suffer with uh bipolar disorder, particularly in their manic phase, even though it's something they seem to enjoy, in the end, the ramifications of their behavior affects them greatly. And then there's the other end, where they're completely clinically depressed and they can't get out of bed. So bipolar disorder is sort of, it's two ends of the extreme. Fortunately for me, I only had to uh, deal with the the lower end. My, My... Diagnosis at this point, I would say, is probably major, uh, major depressive disorder. I'm going to say multiple episode in remission because I had one more episode, and I want to describe that to you. I was fortunate enough that when I was 29 and my son was six months old, and this is seven years removed from the hospital, I believe. Please forgive me if my timeline is wrong. I'm 42 and sometimes time and space. I mean, I remember when I was a college student, but it seems like a long time ago. Um, My son was six months old and we had some stressors in our house um, regarding financial issues and stuff. And my issues of depression started again. I couldn't sleep. I had no appetite. And when my issues of clinical depression occur... I can't stop worrying. I can't shut my mind off. I do nothing but fixate and worry about things. But because I have a great wife and I have a very good support network, folks saw what I was doing. I tried to quit my job four times, the company that I'm still at to this day, and they said, stop, take some time off, go back and see who you saw. And I was able to go back on medicine, and I have not, and I will tell you to this day, Again, I take uh, Prozac, 10 milligrams a day. I will take it for the rest of my life. I do not want to take a chance that I could go through another episode of which I went through. The second episode, which I discussed when my, my son was six months old, was not nearly as difficult or as horrible as the one that I suffered when I was 22. And now, an advertisement. Should you be interested in the story... And please don't feel obligated or anything like that. Afterwards, I can stick around and I have copies of the book in case you would like to buy it. It's $25. I don't have a credit card machine. You can write me a check, although I'll look at your number because if it's like check number three, I probably won't take it. But if you'd like, they'll be available right here after the, um, after the discussion at noon if you would like to read it. Okay, so let's talk about that story a little bit. Oh, and because I'm not a big fan of straight lectures... And although some of you do look like you're afraid to ask a question, not you, though. You don't look afraid. Yeah. It's because your posture. You look very comfortable. That's all it means. Is that if you have a question, please ask it. Raise your hand, ask a question. 
I prefer a discussion-like thing rather than a straight lecture anyway. Okay? So if you have a question, ask it. All right. Sure. The question is, have I ever tried to wean myself off of Prozac? The answer is no. <laughs> I feel the question was, do I have a dependency? Here's the answer. I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. I have a serotonin uh, deficiency. I believe, I believe, and through what I've studied, that mental disorders, there's a combination of factors that are involved, okay? And if, if the question is, why did you, this is not the question you asked, but Robert, why did you get depressed and why were you hospitalized for four and a half months? Are you crazy? The answer is, no, I'm not crazy. I have an issue with clinical depression, and here's the answer. I have a serotonin imbalance in my brain. Serotonin is the chemical floating around there that helps keep your moods balanced. So that's one thing I know for sure. Because I respond to the drug. And the funny thing about pharmacology is everybody's different. I have, if I have clinical depression and you have, if Greg has clinical depression, I might respond to Prozac and he might respond to Wellbutrin. Or he may not respond to it at all. And he, I think the new one's Symbata or some, what is it? It sounds like a triangle instrument, doesn't it? Right. So everyone's body chemistry is completely different. But the reality of the situation is I had that. And then people who have issues with um, emotional disturbances, when stressors occur, it can only make it worse. Okay? And then there's all kinds of other factors I had. I graduated from college, and I'll take this moment to explain to you. My experience with at Western was unbelievably wonderful. Yes, I believe college can be hard work, but I also believe it can be a great time. Um, I enjoyed myself at Western <laughs> probably more than I should have. But the point is, is that it's hard work too. And then, eventually, you're done with school at some point. Now, I had some friends that were on the six-year plan and the seven-year plan and the eight-year plan, but at some point it ends. And it's a really harsh reality that you, you, have, you have this great network of friends. You go to parties. You do some other things. Maybe you have a part-time job. Maybe you're in a fraternity or sorority. Maybe you're playing athletics. And then it's time to go out into the real world, if you will. You've got to find a job. You've got to get, you know, got to pay your bills. And that's extremely, it's, that's a traumatic change. And that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to go into speaking to college students is because I was 22, I was headed for law school, I was dating a girl that I thought was great, and once I left Western, it all kind of started to fall apart. Now, there was a whole bunch of factors in it underneath that. Whether you believe it or not, as I stand in front of you today, I had really bad self-esteem when I, my entire life until I was about 22. So there's a whole part of that, too, that, that thinking, when you're thinking, it's a chemical process. And there are synapses and stuff firing in your brain. But when you have poor self-esteem or you convince yourself that you're not worthy or you're not good, you're convincing your mind to think in a certain way. And chemicals fire a certain way. I'm going off on a million tangents because that's what happens. But the reality of it is to you, my answer is simply, I am not going to take the chance. When I got out of the hospital when I was 22, I went off of medicine immediately. Because I'm Italian, I'm half Italian, I'm very stubborn. You can ask my wife. I'm pretty stubborn. I didn't take any medicine for seven years. And then all of a sudden I had another episode. And instead of wanting to kill myself, which is what happened when I was 22, I was able to have a good support network that was, even though I kind of resisted treatment and help, those folks helped guide me to go back. And I went back and saw the same exact therapist that it, that's in the book and I went back and saw the exact same psychiatrist that's in the book and they got me right back where I needed to be and I have not had an episode since and I think a lot of that is maturity my, my view of the world at 42 is a whole lot different than when I was 22 or 16 and the only piece of advice that I could offer anyone that's younger is the difference is, is when you're 16 or, 
or 17 or 19 or 21 is that you feel that every decision you make or everything that occurs to you is over the, the impact is overwhelming on your life that this is this girl broke up with me this is the end of the world I'll never find anyone else blah 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 and the reality of it is is that the older you get you realize those decisions or those things that occur are not overwhelming and not they're significant but they shouldn't paralyze you that as you get older your perspective changes and you can find that okay that's just one piece and now I move on to the next piece or that's one issue and the one thing I'd like to share with you is in the last five months my wife can attest we've had one heck of a run and I'm not saying in a great way um, Lisa, my, my beautiful wife there, uh, who's very career-oriented, uh, lost her job in November, correct? My mother, who's, who, despite what you read in the book, I do love her very, very much and don't blame her for everything. And Dr. Freud can leave me alone. But my mother has Parkinson's and has been ill for about 10 years. And my 86-year-old father has been caring for her until... Two years ago when we told them you have to have someone help you in the house, so we had a, a person 20 hours a day, well, I got a call. So Lisa lost her job in November. I got a call three weeks later that said my dad was going to the hospital. He was in congestive heart failure, so I had to find somewhere for my mother to go, and I had to find out what was going on with my dad. There's financial strains. So I can tell you that I love my Prozac. And I can also tell you that at 42, with all the treatment I've had and the fact that I have an education in, in social work uh, and I've done some clinical work also, that it, it allowed me the perspective to say that even with all the insanity of what's occurring around me, you can take a deep breath and you can take control of your emotions and you can monitor what's going on and you can get through it. This is a very different perspective than when I was 22 and I was going to go to DePaul Law School and I forgot to mail in my $150 check to secure my seat. So then I got a letter back a couple of weeks later that said, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Smolo, your seat has been passed on to someone else. Good luck and maybe you can come back next year. And uh, the girl that I had dated um, cheated on me and then broke up with me. So there's a nice one, right? And then I was done with Western, and I loved it. At Western, I was someone who lots of people know. It's like it was. It's a campus of about twelve thousand, so there's a chance where you get to know a core group, and then you could meet someone new every day. And it was a ball. And my nickname to this day is still Boober. Sorry, sorry, mom, but that's what people call me still. That's what they called me then. They still call me. There's some people that still don't even really know my real name, which is kind of funny, and. I left Western, and then I was at DePaul Law School. Well, okay, so I lost my seat. Then they sent me a letter back that said a seat had opened up, so I sent my check after securing a job. So then I went back to law school, and I was there for two weeks. And then I completely lost it. I couldn't. Through all that stress, the girl, the law school, going, not going, going back, getting a job, not getting a job, going back, all those stressors, and leaving Western was a big piece of that because I enjoyed it so much. All those things, and then on top of it, I was an incredibly insecure human being. I can tell you I am not that way anymore. That when people look at me and say, he's kind of cocky. Well, I kind of am because I spent 22 years not being cocky, and it got me nowhere. Okay? So I built my self-esteem later. Not to offend anyone, but, it, you know, I'm confident in who I am. And that's a lot better feeling than constantly doubting yourself and beating the crap out of yourself for who you are. So I'm very fortunate. So back then, when I'm 22, bad self-esteem, a predisposition chemical imbalance, several factors, stressors that occurred. I, tried, I sat, I, I was just miserable. I quit law school, and my biggest regret to this day, well, okay, I have a bunch of regrets, but one of them is that I never went back and got my books. I paid like $500 for my books back then in 1989. 
for my law school books, and I, I don't have them. I kind of wish I had them just so I could say, well, I, I paid $500 for them. But I never went back to my locker. Once I quit law school, I came home, and I tried to find a job, but at this point, I couldn't sleep. I had no appetite. And all I could do is essentially catastrophize in my brain. All I thought of is the worst-case scenario. Everything's going to hell. It's miserable. And at some point, what people don't understand about the person that's suicidal is it's a completely selfish act. You're not thinking about your little brother. You're not thinking about your mother. You're not thinking about your friends. You're thinking about the anguish that is in your head and that you just want to end it. You don't want to feel that anymore. I couldn't sleep. That's a sleep Sleep is important to me even now. And when I couldn't sleep, it's horrible. So, um, after several different events in my, in my house of the things that I described, my parents went somewhere, and I went in the car, and I shut the garage, and I turned it on for a while. And I was so aggravated I wasn't dead in like five minutes. That pissed me off, because I have no patience either. So I shut off, I went back in the house, my parents came home and said, well, the house kind of smells funny, what were you doing? And I told them, and that's when they said... We're done now. That's it. So you have two choices. We can either drive you to the hospital now, and we don't put on a big show for the neighbors, or we can call an ambulance because you're going one way or another, and you're signing yourself in. And, you know, I was living there at the time and just uh, completely depressed. And I'll tell you the other symptoms, too, is there's sort of a fog and a confusion. And I remember taking showers but not washing the shampoo out of my hair. Because I had no focus. I had no... I couldn't remember. Everything was just kind of foggy. So I went to the hospital. I went to River Edge Hospital. Now, the thing that I can tell you today... This is my record. It's my hospital record. It's double-sided. At the time, it wasn't double-sided. I paid for it. (laughs) So that's the medical record. I think there are parts missing. So that's... That's four and a half months right there. All right. Does anybody have any questions thus far? Anything? Come on. Somebody ask a question. That was a good question, dude. Anybody? Yes, sir. Yes and no. I had no... Okay, the question is, did I have any prior... Did my parents know? My parents were definitely aware that my behavior had changed and my attitude had changed and I had become kind of a different person. I wasn't... um, I became much more reserved. I've always been sort of an outgoing kind of person. I'd become more reserved. I had quit law school which is something that I'd worked for for four years. I had got a job and quit a job in two days. So they knew something wasn't right. So they did see that. As far as, you know, emotional disorders or mood disorders or mental illness, there's a big hereditary component to it. So I have an older family, as you're well aware. I told you my father was 86 and my mom is 80. But back then, for their aunts and uncles and their relatives, you know, the mental health system probably really wasn't all that developed. Clinical skills weren't all that great. But I can guarantee you I can go find grandparents and aunts and uncles that were alcoholics because that's what folks did back then. They went and self-medicated. And people even still do that today before they have the issues. Um, But my parents did did see a change in my behavior and in fact they did take me to two different therapists and one of the problems like anything else if you're resistant I was resistant I didn't want help I didn't want help in the story and that's why I was in there for four and a half months and one of the reasons I bring up the fact that I was in there for four and a half months is I don't think my story could happen today with managed care and insurance companies cutting off things. I mean, I, I was medically necessary for me to be in there, but I think at some point I would have probably ended up in Madden or a, a public facility. And thank God my dad had great insurance. 
But that's one of the reasons I bring that up, because I think today it's a very different story. I don't think you can get that kind of care. Anything else before we move on in our fabulous little story? Yes, sir. Okay. Although it is desc- although it's described differently in the book, the real reason that my nickname is Boober is because of the very first week I was there. A whole bunch of us. <laughs> this is going out on the podcast. I'm sure this is very helpful. Uh, the first week we were there, uh, fifth floor Wetzel Wetzel Hall was where I lived. We all went out beer beer drinking and chasing skirt and probably did a lot more of the beer drinking than the other part. And we all ended up back in our dorm, and everybody was given a nickname. And there was a guy who had sideburns but no mustache, so he was Abe, right? There's another guy that was really tall. He was stilt. There was another guy that just looked like, a, like an ogre, so that was his nickname. And these guys, to this day, I still call them that, which is really kind of sad because you're 42, and at some point you should grow up, but I guess I never will. And then one guy looked at me and said, well, can we call you Mouth? And I'm like, well, that's not really. I don't want to be called mouth. He goes, he's kind of an idiot. Let's call him a boob. And then it stuck. You know, like the British term for a boob is an idiot. And then they added the ER. And then my sophomore year, I pledged a fraternity. And I didn't want anybody. I wanted to go there and be Robert or Bob. So I'm walking down the street towards the fraternity house. And I lived on the same floor with a bunch of the guys that had now lived in the house. And it was a pre-rush dinner. So I'm walking down the street, and there's all the dudes. And, and then one guy leans out the window and goes, Oh, my God, there's Boober. <laughs> so it stuck, and I didn't, I didn't have a chance to change it. And from that point on, even when I was on judicial board at school, where we were ruling on cases of student misconduct and stuff, or anything that I had, had participated in, people literally didn't know my name. My wife didn't know my name for four weeks until after we started dating our sophomore year. Correct? That's right. That's pretty sad. How come you didn't ask? I asked. Nobody knew your name. I kept asking what is Very strange phenomenon. So there you go. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the treatment that I got in the hospital and why I feel um, so grateful and lucky and fortunate and blessed to be before you today. One of the things that I think about in the media, particularly when you watch television shows or movies, um, therapists to me or social workers are always portrayed as kind of stupid or ethically challenged or goofy. They don't ever seem to be the hero of the film or whatever. Now, that's my perception. Maybe you have a little different perception. But whenever you see a show like Law and Order and a social worker is involved, they're the one that's going to end up in prison because they're doing something stupid or goofy. That's just sort of... And one of the reasons that I'm really thankful and glad that I was able to get the story out was that I believe the treatment that I got was amongst the best anyone could ever have. My therapists, and particularly um, in the mental health milieu, I love to say that word, milieu, um, the counselors in, in the hospital were absolutely phenomenal. And what I can say by that is that there's a lot of talk in the field today about individually designed treatment. Okay? We're not doing cookie-cutter uh, cookie treatment plans. That we're going to give you the same treatment and therapy, and you the same treatment and therapy, and you the same treatment. We're not going to fit you in. We're going to look at what your needs are, what your diagnosis is, what works with that, and we're going to work with you, which may be completely different from you and completely different from you. And in a day and age with challenging funding sources and lots of people sometimes in the clinical world think they have the answer and they know what they're doing, they might try to fit everyone in, but the reality of it is the treatment that I got is that they looked at me and said, this is a 22-year-old, first episode, emotional disorder, college kid. We're going to treat him like one. And I'm going to treat him like a... Because when I was in the hospital for four and a half months, I still... Even today, it still strikes me as really odd. Um, There were people that cycled in and out with schizophrenia and serious mental health issues and some of the people that I talked about before that are the chronic folks that are just going to keep coming in and out because their mental health or their mental illness is so severe. Um, 
And I was very fortunate because they looked at me and said, this is an opportunity to work with a kid, and if we do what's right and we have some good fortune and we get him a treatment and he responds, he may be a kid that we don't have to see again. And I had several folks who vested themselves in my treatment above and beyond the call of duty. So, in the book, the very first page, when you open it up, the dedication, because <laughs> you never know when you're going to ever get another book out. So I have like a dedication that's like 17 pages long. I just want to thank everybody. But I went through my... I went through my record, and there's a lot of handwritten notes, and clinicians are a lot like doctors. They don't want you to be able to read their writing for some reason. I went through, and for the dedication, I tried to find anyone who I could read their signature, and I thanked them in the front of the book, because I believe they did an unbelievable job in caring for me. I keep fighting with this. I don't know why. Will you hold that, please? Thank you. So back to my treatment plan. They wanted to treat me like a 22-year-old college kid fraternity boy. And there's a character in the book that those of you that read the first 50 pages unfortunately did not get to read yet. But his real, life, his real name uh, in real life is Jonathan James. And I hope someday to meet him so I could give him a hug and thank him so much because I feel incredibly blessed that he was one of the main people to get me to health. Jonathan James. In, real, in the book, his name is Timothy. And let me make a quick statement about the book and why names are changed and such. The, what I consider this book is a fictionalized account based on a true story. Okay, what does that mean? What it means is this is what happened to me, but I changed a few things. So A, maybe somebody wouldn't sue me. And B, I wanted the names changed so if people were sensitive about being in there or whatever, they wouldn't be able to be identified as being in there. And C, there were a couple of things that I did um, for dramatic effect that didn't necessarily happen, but they are minimal. So I can tell you that the main part of the book, every big crisis, the people, the conversations I had with them, are what occurred. And let me clarify that. I didn't write it just a year ago. I wrote this book 19 years ago when I got out of the hospital. I just got it published now. Because I've had some friends go, my God, your memory is unbelievable. How do you remember all this stuff? I go, I don't. I can't. I wrote it 19 years ago. And I wrote it 19 years ago because the other part of my message to you today is I want people to get over the stigma of mental illness or emotional disorder or whatever. It's not like I'm standing up here super proud and saying, I've got clinical depression, but I'm not ashamed of it. It's something I have, and you can function, and you can do good things. You can live a healthy, productive life. You don't have to be ashamed. And too many people, I'm half Italian, so there was a part of me that resisted treatment. I'm strong enough. I can get through this by myself. I don't need treatment. No. I needed treatment. I have an illness, just like diabetes or what, anything else. It's something that needs to be addressed by professionals. So people who are worried about the stigma, oh my God, you're, you're crazy. You're crazy. You're, dude, you're nuts. Yeah, but I take medicine, so now I'm fine. I don't care. And people who have those issues should not be ashamed or stigmatized. So those are, you know, the, the two big messages that I have. If there's something going on, go get treatment. If you start having some issues or some symptoms, go get treatment. Either talk therapy or pharmacot drugs. <laughs> I couldn't say it. Um, or a combination of both because different things work for different people. Some folks take just the talk therapy route and it works. Some people do um, medicine. That works. Some people do a combination of both. I found that the most helpful. Now at 42, my approach is a lot different. So I, I kind of understand. I, like if I need to go see uh, Dr. Davis, <laughs> that's his real name, I'll go for a, a, a mental health oil change. I'll go in every once in a while and say, okay, here's what's going on. But, you know, when you're in therapy for four and a half months, 
intensive therapy, you kind of learn some of the things. To, because a lot of therapy, one of the pieces is you have to ask yourself really difficult questions and be able to answer those questions, honestly. A good therapist can get that out of you. That's very important. All right, where was I, Lisa? Because I... All right, Timothy. There we go. Timothy. His name is Jonathan James. Jonathan James in real life was six foot five, African American. Um, he was he he was bald and he had like the bowling ball with curtains kind of look, you know, where it's like got the hair there, and he had big mutton chop sideburns. He had hairy carry glasses. He was nuts. But he cared about me so much that he treated me like a college student, not a mental patient. Now, I'm sure I've given a copy of the, man, of the book to both Dr. Davis and Dr. Trum, who are Dr. Knight and Dr. Simone. That's who they are in the book. And I don't know if they've read it yet, but when they read it, they might be a little freaked out at some of the stuff that some of the counselors did, but they treated me like a college student, for example... One story that happens in the book is one of the things that you did in the hospital is you had one-to-ones. And what that was is your counselor would meet with you to talk to you about what was going on with you or if you had any issues or whatever, and it would be like a counseling session. Or like me, when I was on the floor where you couldn't have anything, my toothbrush was locked up, my toothpaste was locked up, I had no shoelaces. I had So you had to go to them for anything that you wanted, Right. So I went to the nurse's station, and I said, where's Jonathan? It's time for my one-to-one. And they said, well, he's in room 1C. Go back there. So I went back there, and I opened up the door, and it was kind of dark. And I opened up the door, and what do I see? Jonathan James is mooning me, and he's slapping his butt, and he's saying, kiss my black ass, Robert Smola, kiss my black ass, get well and get out of here. Okay, what's the point? Should he have been fired? No. He was treating me like, I, like a college student. Now, probably the hospital rules would have fired him, but I understood what he was doing. He didn't want me to be treated like, you know, he wanted to wake me up. And I know Amy probably would freak out at that kind of treatment, and I understand it, but for me, it was what I'm trying to say is maybe that's extreme, but that was clinically appropriate for me. Perhaps Dr. Davis would have disagreed and some other folks would have disagreed, but the reality of it is, is I was 22. His point is, let's go. What are you doing in here? Wake up. Not that that's going to fix it, but in common, he was reminding me of who I was, not what I was right then. The other key piece is the self-esteem piece. There's a book by Dr. Robert Burns, and it's called, it's, it's, there's, sorry, they've had many different versions or updates or editions, but if you're looking for a book to talk about, if you're not a big fan of chemicals or you don't want to try medicine, but you're interested in how to change your, your cognitive approach, how to think differently, it's called The New Mood Therapy by Dr. Robert Burns. It's an excellent book, and it does things. There's exercises in there, and I know some of you are like, oh, come on, that sounds so stupid. But the reality of it is when you have poor self-esteem and you're in the midst of a depression, all you do is mentally beat the crap out of yourself. I'm no good at this. I'm a loser. I'm this. I'm that. And what the New Mood Therapy talks about in his book is how to retrain or re-attack your mind so that it starts to think in different ways. There are exercises like, okay, today, I know it sounds, but it works. I'm going to write ten things I like about myself. Okay, that sounds like a real social worky thing to do. The point of is, when you're in the middle of a pretty bad episode, you need to do exercises like that to remind yourself you know, why, who am I? How can I get better? So the New Mood Therapy talks about that. It also has, um, I can't think of the technical name. There's a depression inventory. I can't think of the technical name, but, it, it, pardon? Yeah. Thank you. Very, very nice tie also. Excellent. Um, there's uh, the Beck's depression inventory is in that book, so you can take that and see what's going on. 
and help assess. You know, it's sort of a, a quick little assessment tool. But it's a great book in case you're interested in, in checking out maybe not a chemical approach. But go ahead. What's up? You can ask my wife. Oh, repeat the question. Did it scare you to go into a situation like that where you could not have access to your toothbrush or your shoestrings or your deodorant or anything like that or take a shower without being supervised by someone? And the answer is absolutely. But I was so depressed, I kind of was in a fog. The reality of it is, is I will tell you that even to this day, 20 years later, I occasionally have a nightmare where I'm in the hospital. When I first got out, I had nightmares regularly. Like I, and they're so, you ever have those dreams that they're so incredibly real, you're convinced they're real until you wake up? I used to have those all the time. Now it's eased over time, but I still occasionally have that fear because there's a part of me now that feels that I've gotten all the treatment, you know, I've got treatment. I've, I, I understand the issue. I never want to end up back there. Now, mind you, I will tell you this. If I had to go, I would go because it saved my life. I'm here before you today because I was hospitalized. And as you read in the book, there are several other fun adventures that occur along the way. Yes, ma'am. question is, are there any studies that indicate what happened to people who hit absolute rock bottom and don't get any services? Okay. I don't know. I don't have any research in front of me, but I can tell you anecdotally and then what logically tells me. I was lucky. I was fortunate. Because I think some people, when they're so despondent, eventually will find a way to end their life. Or make an attempt to where, even if they're not successful they will severely impact the quality of the rest of their life. There are plenty of people who try to commit suicide, are unsuccessful, but severely hurt or harm themselves. Well, I think the key there is is that there's a difference between reaching out to a friend of yours or even a a, a teacher because I believe Maureen Valley has counselors, do they not? They do not. So there's a, you have a counseling department that I would recommend. I mean, they're here for a reason, and if you're having issues, that's the first place to start. I think, you know, that's that's what I believe. Yes, ma'am. That's an excellent question. The question is, was shock therapy a, an option for me? The answer is um, probably at some point, but they never did. Because it, back then you could have done it, but it was never mentioned to me. Although in staffings that I was not in, potentially there could have been a discussion about it, but it was not mentioned to me. And Shock therapy, or I believe it's called electroconvulsive therapy, because you're actually putting the, the, the brain into a seizure. That's what it is. It's making sort of a, a very cautious comeback. Not that everybody gets it, but there are lots of institutions that as a last-ditch method, they are trying to use it. And for some folks, a very small portion, it works. 
for some, it's for some, again, why does Prozac work for me and Wellbutrin work for you and shock therapy? And I don't know. Now, the reality of it is, is too, there's, a, there's something that we need to distinguish. There is a difference between the blues, having a bad day, and clinical depression. The DSM-4 lays out for you all of um, the guidelines to what a clinical depression is. It has a certain length, a length like how long you're experiencing these feelings, what, a, what, what the behavior is like, some of what the emotions are like. Everybody has lousy days or a couple of days where it stinks or whatever. But when, to me, the key is when it starts to, to, to grab on to who you are and you constantly feel terrible and you constantly feel there's no hope, there's no future. See, these are part of the Beck's inventory. Do you have hope for the future? And when you start thinking, God, maybe it would be better if I wasn't here. And then it moves into, well, how would I do it? Good clinicians, real good clinicians, when somebody starts reporting, to, they ask you, do you have a plan? Have you thought about how you would do it? How would you do it? They need to assess the level of you know, your suicidal ideation. Oh, it's just something I thought about. No, I'm going to go into my garage. You know, they have to assess to figure out what your risk is. Tear us off. Oh, wait, that's risk to someone else. Okay, any other questions? Man with the cool tie. Just a question I asked with regard to your, your thoughts on suicide. Feel free to disregard it because it's kind of a weird question. But what do you think happens when you die? <laughs> that is a fa- the question is what do I think happens when I die? Well, do you really want to know my answer? Seriously? Okay. I was asking the rest of the crowd. Officer friendly over there. I already have one wife. She tells me what to do. Um, okay, I'm a practicing Catholic, but I have a whole different sort of view on Catholicism. I'm not if the Pope ever talked to me, he'd kick me out kind of thing. When you're suicidal, I believe you're sick. And I, there are some cases of, especially with teenagers, where it's such an impulsivity thing that it may not be well thought out. It's just like, ooh, I want candy. Ooh, I, I like that show. Ooh, I think I'm going to kill myself. And they act on it. Okay, that's a whole different thing. But when you're truly mentally ill and suicidal, I believe you're sick. And I believe that God understands that. But that's not an excuse. <laughs> so don't think I'm absolving anybody or anything or whatever. You've got to figure that out on your own. And the reality of it is, is that everybody's faith or whatever is, I believe that's a sort of a, an individual thing. It's a whole individual journey and search or whatever. But that's why I think, I think anyone that commits suicide is really ill. And then I believe the Lord takes care of those that are ill. There's my answer. Anybody else? Young lady in the pajamas. Oh, I never f- imagined that, Mr. Tangent. Um, I, I, went, I quit my job four times. I'm in the social services industry. I work for a private consulting firm, and I have a wonderful wife. And we all went in and talked to my boss, and they said, here's what we're going to do. By the time it would take us to find another person to do the work that you do and to bring them on and train them, why don't we just send you off for a month? We're going to give you a month off. Go get the services you need and come back when you're healthy. So I went back I went and I re-engaged in services with both the uh, clinicians that I had dealt with in the book, got back on medicine, and went back to work a month later. And when people asked me, where were you? I said, I had an episode of clinical depression. I had to get help, and that's what I did, and now I'm back at work because I'm not ashamed. You had a, somebody, yes, young lady. Blackhawks. She has a Blackhawks shirt on. She's very cool. They play tonight. 7 p.m., I think. I was wondering if you're worried about, like, your son. Yes, I absolutely. Because I will watch my wife and I, pardon? Oh, the, yes, dear. The question was, am I worried about my son? I have two children, uh, a son and a daughter. He's 14, and she is... Eight. Take it easy. And um, the reality of it is, is 
mental health issues or emotional disorders are hereditary. So I will watch my children like a hawk. My son has already been in therapy. Imagine that. Um, because it is chemical. And ironically enough, my son's therapist was my therapist. So yes, it's something I'm worried about. I'm especially worried about my son when he goes to high school and my daughter when they go to high school because of the trauma of high school and how, as we talked about earlier, the immediacy or how every decision you may, uh, make seems you know, like it's just a, the end of the world if it doesn't come out right. He seems to be one of those very sensitive kids and his self-esteem sucks. So yes, my wife and I are very, very, very aware of it. And I am concerned about it. Any other questions? Back there, in the green? The question... The question is, what do I do in social services? The answer is, uh, let me take you on a brief detour. When I got out of the hospital, I felt so fortunate and so blessed, and I just felt that I was going to law school for all the wrong reasons. I don't think I would have ever made it through anyway. Just That's my own thing. I don't think I, I, don't think I had the true desire to do it. So I wanted to go and work and help people as sort of a karmic thank you to the world for taking care of me. So I went and worked at CARC, Chicago Association of Retarded Citizens, as a training counselor. And I worked with developmentally disabled adults in a vocational workshop that made airline pillows. They still make airline pillows. And then uh, my wife and I got married and we had a discussion and said, well, we're never going to be rich, but I probably should go get a master's degree if I want to make a little more money. So my wonderful, beautiful wife put me through. Um, I went part-time for two years while I was working, and then I went one year full-time. And my wife put me through, and my mom and dad took my car payment, and her mom and dad took her car payment to help, me make, to help us make it through. <clears throat> and then I've been with um, a company now that does uh, social service consulting, and I've been there for 15 years. What does social service consulting mean? We do... Um, full-scale sort of projects for, like, DCFS. <coughs> so that's where I've been the last um, 15 years. My master's is in social work, and I, have a, and I did clinical work. for. I work with kids. I don't really like working with adults. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah, the question was, am I an LCSW? The answer was yes. <laughs> that's my... Yes, over here. The question is, how would I feel if my eight-year-old needed medication? My answer is this. Deeply philosophically, I believe that we medicate our children far too often than we probably need to. That, again, this is no reflection of Maureen Valley or Amy Williamson. This opinion is only of Robert David Zola. Thank you. That we, that there's a crisis more in parenting in our society than there is necessarily with the meds. But some children do need meds, but it's probably not as many as need structure, and the kids need, you know, structure. A lot of us are just too tired from two working two jobs. It's a lot easier to give Johnny a pill than it is to say, no, redirect, and then, you know, be a behaviorist, punishment and rewards. So that would be my answer. Somebody else? You young lady? Mm-hmm. I still believe that if oh yes dear the question is for those less fortunate what um, what should they do or how do they get services I think is the question the reality of it is that there still are um, there are a lot of community mental health centers in communities like United Way, United Charities, Catholic Charities. And a lot of these agencies do sliding scale counseling. So I think that that's one step. 
Um, people who don't have insurance, I think they can go to clinics and talk to doctors about medication. So I think there's always, it's, look, the reality of it is we're a society of have and have nots. And if you have, it's a lot easier to get services or whatever. I was fortunate my dad had great insurance. But for those of us around those that are less fortunate, I think it's part of our responsibility to help, if we know of someone, to help guide them. Like I said, there are men, uh, community mental health centers, there are crisis lines that are free. So these are some of the ways that we can help people access getting some of the services that they may need. Community health centers, crisis lines, clinics. Is that it? Any more? Oh, anybody have any more questions? I'm, I'm feel free to. I have no problem. Somebody else? Yes, Officer Friendly. Um, currently, in our work with, uh, uh, the question was, do we work, uh, does Chrysalis, where I work, work with foster kids? The answer is, we, um, two of our projects that we work on are not direct service. So we work on programs, for example, wards of the state that are in parole or probation or corrections. I go around the state to the six different regional sites and I do a complete review of these kids and collect, collect demographic information. I don't see the kids, but I collect their demographic information and some of their clinical information. And then I, we do reports on them, and we see trends and stuff like that, and we report that back to DCFS. So I don't see the kids, or we don't see the kids, but we just, we just got another project now where we're actually a crisis line for, for wards of the state and other kids who are in crisis. It's called CARES. We don't see the kids, but we talk on the phone sometimes with kids, and we talk on the phone with foster parents, and whether they meet eligibility, if they have Medicare and, uh, or don't have any insurance or their wards of the state, and they meet um, uh, acuity, they have enough risk factors, we'll send out a third-party SAS agent, screening assessment and support services, and they'll go out and assess the child whether they can be supported in the community or they need to be hospitalized. But we at this, my agency does not technically see foster kids. That is my answer. Anybody else? All I can tell you is that, oh, to repeat the question, my wife wants me to repeat the question. The question was, the question was, we have 19 years we've been married. This is pretty much par for the course. How did I get to the course of medicine that I got to? The reality of it is it took a long time for me to get to Prozac. But when I was in the hospital, I was, in, I was treatment resistant. So that was one part of it. I didn't want help. I just was so miserable. Second thing was is they were fooling around. They didn't know what to do, and it took a while for me to figure out. When I first went back on medicine nine years ago or whatever I said, <clears throat> I was originally on a dose of like 20 or 25 do, uh, milligrams of Prozac, which for me was way too much. So I worked with my psychiatrist. I said, you know what, I feel like I'm sleepy all the time or whatever, and then we finally got to 10. When I was in the hospital, and it's well documented in the story, I had, I had all kinds of side effects. I, um, I had the weirdest reaction to the drugs where my eyes, it was the strange thing. Now I have to tell you, something about being in a mental, inpatient mental health thing, time tends to switch cheese, and it melts, and you're not really sure what day it is. And I mean, it's just part of being on, on the inside of, of an institution like that. But then you add medicine, like I put my pen down, which on one unit I was allowed to have pens, by the way. So I put my pen down, and you walk away, but you don't know if another patient took it, if a staff took it, or if you, and so you start going, you're like, what do I do with the pen? You know, it's like that stuff. But the weirdest reaction I had to drugs was I would read a newspaper for 10 minutes, and then my eyes would go blurry. And then I'd borrow the staff person's glasses, and I'd read for 10 more minutes, and then it'd go blurry again. And I was on all kinds, and they tried everything for a while. And then there was a portion where I had a really bad episode, and they shot me so full of stuff that for three days I don't even know what happened. I had to read my record to find out what was going on. But we eventually got to the point, there was one point where they thought lithium was going to work, and that seemed to coincide with a change 
in my behavior, but one of the things about depression is if you don't kill yourself and you hang in there long enough, generally it, it does tend to lift. And it seemed that that, but we got to Prozac and it was a long journey. So that's the answer. It took a long time. And even when I got back out and went back on, it took a while to figure out what the right dosage was. I'm on a very low, low maintenance dosage. But again, I hesitate not. If I have some issues, I'll go right back to whatever they need me to go on. I don't ever want to feel that way ever again. Any other questions? Back there. St. John's Wort? No, or just like a 5-HTP or some kind of amino acid therapy. I think it's Julian Ross, or it's called the Wood Cure. It's more, um, you know, amino acids. Um, sure. Holistic, right. Right. The question is, have I ever looked into any more of a holistic approach to, to meds or anything? And this is my answer to that. I believe everybody's answer may be individualized. And I believe that for Greg, he might have an issue with dude, with a girl or something, and he just needs to go talk to a counselor, and he works it out, and he's fine. Me, my self-esteem was so bad, I needed to be hospitalized. You, you might respond great to an amino acid natural, or some people, St. John's worked for a while, was the big raise. They said that that was, look, whatever works for anybody, I'm just saying address it and don't ignore it. Sure. One of, one of the things in the 80s that was the biggest thing about Prozac, and I remember this distinctly, is that I think Prozac was like Time Life's Man of the Year or something. It was a really weird thing, but Pro, because at the time, Prozac was being written to change people's personalities because they felt if people were shy, write them some Prozac, and now all of a sudden they're assertive. This was the big trend going on back then. The reality of it is, is there are side effects to almost everything, and that's one of the, the harmful things about any kind of medicine. I mean, you, you know, you're watching TV and it may cause bad breath, gas, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, they just go on and on and on and on with a million different things that could affect you. The reality is that some people have bad side effects or whatever. To me, I'm willing to take whatever risk it is because basically being paralyzed and unable to function in life I'll deal with whatever, and I've been fairly fortunate I, uh, with the side effects. I haven't had really any of them. And that's the thing is, again, Greg may, I'm picking on you, dude. He may, or Dennis. Dennis may take Wellbutrin, and then he ends up with really bad weight gain, and he can't sleep or whatever, and his doctor's got to find something else. Or maybe it is a more natural. But my, my statement is, in being 42 years old, being established in the community, I coach it. This book came out. People had no idea that this happened to me. They would never guess. And my statement was, I'm willing to stand before you and say, I have this issue, I have this issue, this happened to me. I'm just saying, go get help, whatever it is. Whatever your journey is, go get it. Don't wait. If I would have got treatment when I should have got treatment, I would have never gone through this. And I think that's my point. Anybody else? Bueller. Bueller. All right. Yeah, too young for Bueller. Thank you all very much. If you'd like to purchase a copy of the book, it'll be available up here. I appreciate your time. Good luck to you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.